All right, let's go ahead and turn to the confession this morning and we'll read paragraph three, paragraph three. And this morning we'll be dealing with the subject or the topic related to this paragraph, uh, simply entitled Saving Repentance. Saving Repentance. Paragraph 3, chapter 15 of the Confession. This saving repentance is an evangelical grace, whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. Let's pray together as we begin this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the wonderful, beautiful day You've given to us to come to this place of meeting, to gather together as brethren, uh, to rejoice and to fellowship one with another. And Father, may we be reminded today of the beauty of the local church and the beauty of this body of believers. And Father, may we rejoice in the opportunity we have today to sit under the sound preaching of your word, to rejoice and to sing these wonderful hymns of grace, to be able to pray together, to be able to bring our petitions and our supplications before you. Father, as we study this morning, uh, may we grow in grace. May we grow together. May our hearts be united more and more in one accord. May we desire the same things. May we desire that uh, we grow in our sanctification and that as we are being conformed into the image of Christ, that we rejoice in that, in that, uh, that possibility that you've made and you've given to us that uh, you can take uh, something that is depraved and to turn it into something for your glory and for your honor. Lord, we are overcome with the reality uh, that you would love us, uh, that you would have such compassion and such mercy upon people who were so unworthy of it. And Father, as we deal yet again with this subject of repentance this morning, may our hearts be pliable. May they be softened and molded into what you want them to be. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for each one that's here this morning. Uh, be with those who cannot be here for whatever reason it may be. And Father, may you uh, grant them that peace that passes all understanding. May they encourage themselves in the Lord, and may they return unto us very soon. We thank you and praise you, and it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. Saving repentance. Uh, we've been studying, of course, what repentance is, how repentance is uh, identified and how it is marked. And this, in the confession, in this particular paragraph, uh, this deals in a more specific manner than the first two paragraphs had done. Remember, we looked at the two first paragraphs as being special cases, if you will, uh, things that are not guaranteed that these are going to happen, but they are things that are possible in the life of a believer uh, as they grow. We dealt with in paragraph uh, two, dealing with the warning of falling into sin. And so there was an encouragement there to not fall into uh, sin. Uh, doesn't mean that we will fall into this deep sin, but it's certainly something we should be on guard about. So this particular paragraph, paragraph three, uh, deals specifically with what repentance is, uh, where the place 
of repentance is and the importance in the life of the man and woman of God. First of all, and you can see in the confession, it says this saving repentance is an evangelical grace. It is an evangelical grace. When we see that particular phrase, uh, that implies, tells us something, that there is a repentance that is not a saving repentance. We have to guard against the reality of thinking that all repentance or, or all sorrow is saving sorrow or saving repentance. The Apostle Paul dealt with this subject, if you'd like to turn there this morning to 2 Corinthians 7, we'll be referencing that passage as well. But there is a repentance that appears to be saving. Now, there is a repentance that we might even call repentance, but it is something that is not joined to faith. Uh, remember, to have faith is repentance, and repentance is faith, and they those two must be joined together. Uh, we can be sorrowful for something that we do. Uh, even the unbeliever can be sorrowful for what they do. They may do something wrong another person, and they might even say, I am deeply sorry for what I've done to you. I'm deeply sorry for what I've said, how I've acted. And that doesn't mean that that is some kind of saving repentance. Uh, we can even say to, we can say to a God in general, uh, God, I'm sorry I'm such a wicked person. I'm sorry I, I did these things. But there is this truth that there is a repentance that appears to be saving, which is not. Now, in 2 Corinthians 7, I just want to read uh, the first, uh, actually verses 9, 10, and 11. And we'll be referencing back and forth here. But Paul, as he's writing to the church at Corinth, he says there in verse 9, he says, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Let's go on and read one more verse. He says, Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Now, Paul brings up this discussion, this topic of this sorrow to repentance in the midst of a passage that he has written that's dealing with being joyful in tribulation. Uh, being joyful uh, in even the difficulties of life. He referenced even the verse previous in verse number eight. He said, for though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. So this evangelical grace, this phrase that uh, maybe you're not as familiar with. Maybe it's something that you're being introduced to for the first time. Uh, we see that there are biblical examples of repentance in the lives of people that was not saving repentance. I'm going to give you a couple examples this morning. The first example I want to look at is King Ahab. 
Um, Ahab, and you can turn over to 1 Kings chapter 21, if you'll know the story of uh, Ahab, and you know uh, the, the wickedness that, was, uh, that defined this man's life. Uh, if there was any a man that we would say needs to be brought to saving repentance, it would have been Ahab. And so as you arrive at 1 Kings chapter 21, you know that uh, the story that Ahab had gone to a man by the name of Naboth, and he wanted to purchase his vineyard. And Naboth, of course, said that his, uh, his uh, vineyard was not for sale. Uh, there was nothing that Ahab could give him that he would say, I will sell this vineyard to you. And we see that Jezebel, uh, Ahab's wife, decides to take action against Naboth because of his uh, unwillingness to sell the vineyard to Ahab. Uh, so you'll see there in verse number 12, it says, They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. And there came in two men, children of Belial, and sat before him. And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. Then they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And it came to pass when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Now, I don't think any of us would disagree that this, this is what we would refer to as a very wicked action. Uh, this is uh, Jezebel uh, and Ahab, two uh, characters in Scripture that uh, nobody in their right mind names their child Ahab or Jezebel. Uh, even in society today, nobody names their boys Ahab and they name their girls Jezebel. They are names that are typically associated uh, with the epitome of wickedness. Uh, Naboth would not sell this garden, this vineyard, and they decide to take, take matters into their own hands. And Jezebel uh, it has Naboth stoned, uh, falsely accused. And so, and we see the wickedness of it just by what happens as Jezebel comes to Ahab and says, listen, uh, Naboth is dead. Uh, the vineyard is yours. Now you don't have to pay for it. It's yours. Just go take possession of it. And so we think that that would be the end of the story. But almost immediately after the possession of this vineyard, God sends a message to Ahab. And that's where we see in verse number 17. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise and go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he has gone down to possess it. And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed and also taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. And Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he answered, I have found thee. Look at this. Because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon thee and will take away thy posterity and will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall and him that is shut up and left in Israel. 
and will make thine house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dieth of Ahab in the city, the dog shall eat, and him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. And he did very abominably in the following idols, according to all things, as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before children of Israel. Now I want you to pay close attention to verse 27, because here is a sorrow and even a a seeming repentance that is not saving. And it came to pass, when Ahab heard those words, that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went softly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbleth himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. Now you will notice there is no mention here of a turning to God. There is no mention of Ahab finding favor or finding faith or exhibiting faith, but he is demonstrating signs of grief. He's demonstrating signs of fear. And the sackcloth and ashes is a classic uh, illustration of a person who is sorrowful. Now you will notice that the word of the Lord as it came did say that because he humbles himself, I will not bring evil in his days, but in his son's days. The consequences of Ahab's wicked action still did take place. But what we see happening here is this man, uh, his wickedness uh, was never turned from. Uh, We have no portion of scripture that says Ahab uh, turned to God. Uh, True saving repentance is not just a, a acknowledgement of sin, or an acknowledgement of sorrow. It is an acknowledgement of sorrow, a recognition of the abomination that sin is, and a turning to God. Uh, There have been millions of people throughout history who have been sorrowful and have even in some way said, I am sorry, but they never turn to God in faith. Ahab is just one of those examples who we never see him being declared as a man of faith, and we never see him as one who tasted of salvation. The second example, of course, is probably the most familiar one, uh, is Judas Iscariot. And in Matthew 27, uh, we know, I, I believe most everyone here today knows the story of Judas Iscariot, knows that he is the one who sold our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, he was ordained before the foundation of the world that he would be the betrayer. Uh, there's no, no question about that. But in Matthew 27, let's read the first five verses there. It says, when the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, now notice, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. 
And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for to be put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with him, bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Now here's a portion of scripture that actually uses the phrase repented. But it says repented himself. Again, there was a sense of remorse. Uh, I don't have any doubt at all. The scripture says there was remorse. There was a sorrow for what he had done. But again, there, was, there is no indication in Scripture that he ever turned to God in faith. Repentance and faith are linked. Uh, true repentance is connected with faith. Faith with repent, without repentance, repentance without faith, they cannot exist. So these two examples here, uh, we know that later on in John 17, 12, this same Judas Iscariot is called the son of perdition. So false repentance may certainly involve grief. False repentance can involve remorse. But oftentimes, false repentance, its main motivation, is a desire to avoid the consequences of sin. Now, in Ahab's case, he himself, by the word of the Lord through Elijah, in some sense did avoid the direct consequences of his sin, when God said, I'm going to withdraw it from his days, but I'm going to bring the consequences on his son. But you'll notice that that is not saving faith. That's not saving repentance. Uh, it is not saving repentance for us to just simply say, hey, look, I'm going to repent of my sin because I want to avoid the consequences of sin unless there is a turning to God. It is not enough to just be afraid of hell. And just because I'm afraid of hell does not mean I have professed saving repentance. You see, we have made, in many ways, we've made a mockery of the true gospel when we simply water this down to something that really all saving faith and really all repentance is. And sadly, I saw this on a numerous uh, websites this week, that their whole idea of repentance is just acknowledgement. I don't have to tell any of you today, do you acknowledge that you have sin in your life? Most everybody here, if you are anywhere close to a believer, say, of course I have sin in my life. But that's not what saved you. That's not repentance. Uh, there's been this movement to move away from the word repentance. We don't want to use the word repentance because it sounds so, sounds so theological, sounds so spiritual. But yet, repentance is not even guaranteed just because someone sheds some tears. So we have to understand that what's happening here is that there is a sense of false repentance. A person may truly show sorrow and say, I truly want to change my life. I want to be a different person. I want to be a better person. But do you realize that the first step of even coming to repentance and understanding what repentance is, is not just an acknowledgement of sin, but it's to have a hatred of sin. A hatred of sin. Uh, to look at sin the way God looks at sin. Uh, not the way that mankind looks at sin. It's, it's a hatred of sin. Why are we to hate sin? Because we do it? No, because it's, a, it's an offense against God. Our number one reason for hating sin is not because of what it does to us and not because of what the consequences it brings. It's because it's an offense to God. 
And until we come to an understanding that what we've done is offended God. Ahab didn't show any demonstration that he had offended God. Judas didn't give any acknowledgement that he had offended God. Uh, he was remorseful, but he was not understanding of this offense towards God. It's lacking in what's necessary. So, by way of application, true repentance involves more than merely a recognition of sin. It also involves an apprehension of sin, how it's offense towards God, and then the mercy of God alone in Christ. All these things must come together to bring us an understanding of what saving repentance truly is. So it is this evangelical grace. Uh, number two, saving repentance grows in the gospel. So saving repentance is an outflow of what the gospel message truly is. Repentance is not a legal transaction. We've talked about that. It is a part of the gospel. But repentance is not just a fear that stirs up our acknowledgement of the law. It's not just a mere human response to retribution. In other words, I'm not just repenting because I'm afraid of what might come down the road. It's the gift of God. Evangelical grace, remember, repentance is the gift of God. It's the product of gospel grace. It is, it is in fact, something that is entirely worked by a sovereign God. It is entirely granted and given by God. Repentance is worked in the heart. If you turn over to Acts chapter 5, we see an example of this working of grace, this working of repentance. Acts 5.31. And this is as Peter is standing before the high council, before the high priest, and they are being told that they cannot preach and teach in the name of Jesus back in verse 28. But it says there in verse 30, it says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. If we turn over to Acts 11, verse 18, so we see there in Acts 5, we see it, it is given. It was given for the forgiveness of sins. Acts 11, verse 18. Let's start in verse 17. He says, For as much then as God gave them the light gift as he did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. That word granted means to give by sovereign grace through Jesus Christ. So, although repentance does not just consist in just solely in having a sense of sin, 
we must realize that having a sense of sin is part of the process. A sense of sin, though, is not something that's worked by man. It's a sense of sin that's worked by the Holy Spirit. Folks, I cannot stress enough. You cannot bring out the sense of sin in another individual in your own power. I don't care how long of a laundry list of offenses you give. You cannot do that apart from the Spirit. Now, should we give the truth? Absolutely. Should we continually give them Scripture? Should we continually call sin what it is? Absolutely. But if that person comes to saving repentance, it is not because of your ability or skill to deal with them. It's not because you have a way with them. It's not because you have a persuasive personality. It is a work of the Holy Spirit that granted them and gave them the gift of repentance. Again, what does that do? That draws us all back to where the working of God in salvation comes. We've all witnessed people be sorry for their actions. We've, we've witnessed people say, look, I'm very remorseful for what I've done. But there really was not an acknowledgement that I have offended God with my sin. So there is this true sense of sin. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us it's the Holy Spirit that opens man's eyes to understand even the horror of violating God's law. If you read some of the older preachers and older commentators, which I am more prone to lean towards, that's my uh, personal preference, they used phrase, phrases talking about sin such as these, the sinfulness of sin. They called sin the plague of plagues, the evil of evils. They were attempting to communicate just how serious and how offensive these things to God are. Now, sadly, we're hearing in our gospel presentations acknowledge that you do wrong. That there's no sense of the awfulness of sin by just simply acknowledging, I do wrong. There is no looking to God and saying, listen, this is not just a minor little thing in my life. This is the plague of all plagues. This is the evil of all evil. This is the very thing that separates me from a holy God, and it's the very thing that's going to damn my soul to hell. You try to give gospel presentations like that to people now, and they can't, they choke on it. I've, I've, I've listened to some preachers who've been called and asked to go into churches, and they've preached very direct messages to solid Bible churches who have choked on the true gospel. They could not handle his words. Now, again, it wasn't because he was using. Uh, this had oratory skill, it was because they, were, they had never really understood what sin really is and why saving repentance is so vitally important. Many of us, probably before we even came to conversion, were sorrowful for things we did wrong. We, we actually probably were under some sense of conviction, even before we fully understood what salvation was. It's not hard to manipulate people's guilt. It really isn't. You can make someone feel pretty guilty with very few words. But making them feel guilty is not saving repentance. 
Acknowledging you're a sinner is not saving repentance. Now, it may be part of what we talk about, but it's certainly not the only thing that's necessary. So when a person is made aware of the evil of their sin, they have a greater grasp of what sin actually is and then what its consequences are. We get the order all wrong. We're worried about the consequences of sin before we're actually concerned about what sin actually is. There have been many people who've repented because they wanted to avoid the consequences. I think that's what you see in Ahab, and I think that's what you see in Judas Iscariot. But that was not saving repentance. That was not God working in their heart and granting unto them this gift of repentance. But rather, it was a matter of, I want to avoid the consequences. And in both of those cases, neither one really avoided the consequences. Somebody paid for the consequences. So to truly understand what a man feels like, okay, when he sees sin for what it is. Let's look at a couple examples of men or people in the Bible who see what sin really is. Uh, Turn to Psalm 51. You knew we were going to go here because this is the the best example of what a true sense of iniquity is and what it actually does to a person who knows what it is. Psalm 51 is a plea, a begging of God for forgiveness from David. He begins by saying, have mercy upon me, O God. Now, no person asks for mercy unless they know the reason why they need mercy. Okay, Mercy is not an obligation of God. God is not ever obligated to show mercy to anyone. Now, in some man-centered theological circles that are happening today and springing up all over the place, they treat it as if God is obligated to show mercy to anyone. And someone would say this, if a person says, does, or thinks this, then God has to show mercy to that individual. Yet in Romans, Paul writes very clearly, God has said, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, which indicates that he is the giver of mercy. He was not obligated to give you mercy. Some people say, well, if you pray this prayer, God's obligated to show you mercy. God is never obligated. David doesn't say, God, I know you will have mercy on me, does he? He says, no, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. Does David ever say, according to your obligation to me, God? No, he says, have mercy according to your loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. This is not a man coming to God saying, God, I'm David. I'm David. I know my role in biblical history. I'm being a little foolish there. I I know who I am. I'm I'm David. You're obligated to show mercy unto me because I'm I'm going to be known years from now part of sound theology as being a type of Christ. David says, 
I'm asking for mercy according to you and according to your characteristics. And he says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, before David ever even acknowledges truly his own sins, he's acknowledged God first. He's acknowledged God's mercy. He's he's making a plea with the mercy of God. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before thee, ever before me. He says, I cannot get away from the reality of my sin. It's ever before my eyes. It's ever before me. How often do we sin and just put it aside and never even think about it again? Now, of course, this context is David is praying specifically about this uh, relationship he had, this sinful relationship with Bathsheba. But David in no means is saying, this is the only thing I need to repent of. This is the only thing I need to be forgiven of. But that's what's the context of this psalm. Verse 4, against thee the only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities." Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. I always thought this statement was really, this is the real effect and the real consequences of sin. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. No true believer who is walking in sin can at the same time be rejoicing and finding joy in their salvation. There's there's no possible way. If you have an acknowledgement and an understanding of the real nature of sin, that you can walk in sin without any sense of repentance and have joy. Now this this will not be a popular statement, but I'm going to say it anyway. Most people's lack of joy in their salvation is because they're walking in unrepented sin. Now, it's not true in every case, but it is, it is very, very telling how we view our own sin. David is acknowledging everything I've done against other people, what I've done against my own body, is an offense to you. That's the true acknowledgement of what repentance really is. Then he says in verse 13, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Or blood guiltiness. Think think about the, 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 the weight of that word. Blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest, watch this, not sacrifice. You know how many people, that's how they try to deal with their sin? They just try to bring God a gift. Because they don't want to acknowledge the reality of sin. They just say, I'm going to bring you a gift, God. God said, if David said, if that's what you wanted, then I'd give it to you. David dispels that whole thing. He said, there's nothing I can bring to you right now 
that will make this change. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifice of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. You see David groaning, pleading with God over his sin. He makes acknowledgement of his own vileness before God. How that it is his sin that has caused the offense. The psalm writer, you don't have to turn there, in Psalm 130 says this, Out of the depths I've cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and his, in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So we see that there is this deep groaning over iniquity. There is an understanding of his own vileness, his own sin before God. And the final thing we'll look at today is in Job 42. I don't have to tell you the story of Job, but the entire last chapter of the book of Job is about the repentance of Job. Now all throughout this book, we maybe lose sight of the reality that Job realizes there were some things about himself that needed to be dealt with. Of course, we know the story, but I want you to see how Job, in these first few verses, he says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Now notice the order here. Job acknowledges, I've heard and I see. When Job actually hears and sees what he really is and what sin really is, what's his response? Wherefore, or as a result of what I've heard, what I see, I abhor myself. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now he is much different than what Ahab did. Because it was the fact that he saw the reality of his own sin and he saw the reality of God. Now why did Job see and hear that? Is because God allowed him and God gave him the ability to see and hear what it really was. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. 
It's an amazing thing to me that all that Job went through, and remember, even his friends tried to convince him that Job, the reason you're going through all this is you must be a really bad sinner because God would only bring these kind of horrible events in your life to a really wicked sinner. One of the great climaxes of this book is to understand that Job was in fact a sinner. Job was in fact a person who deserved to lose it all. And folks, we all were deserving of having nothing. And it is only by that beautiful, gracious God who said, I will show mercy to you and I will grant to you I will do a work in your heart that the Spirit will open your eyes and unstop your ears that you can, first of all, before you can even approach me, understand the reality of how your sin separates you and I. And in folks, until a person can even come to that understanding that their sin is an offense against God, a true understanding of it, don't expect a person to find saving repentance just out of the clear blue sky. I have seen every manipulative gospel presentation you can think of. I've I've seen them all, and I'm sure somebody will invent something new. I have seen people bring such guilt upon a group of people that they literally had them sit on the floor because they were just guilty. They were guilty because, yes, what the man was talking about, they were guilty of doing at some point. But that doesn't mean that they ever were saying, and all of these things were an offense against God, which is that true understanding of what sin really is. Today, I'm glad to be able to know that even though I know I am unworthy of it, that God, by his merciful grace, has given me something I did not deserve. I can't think of a greater message to preach to an entire generation, to an entire world, than to say, there is mercy with God. There's forgiveness with God. There is a a way back to God. But I also know I can't draw that out of an individual. I can only point them and tell them the truth and pray that God does a work in their heart. When you're praying for people, don't pray that God would make you more eloquent to speak. Pray that God would, by His mercy, do a work in their heart through the Spirit, that God would do the work. You're not supposed to be doing the work. You're not the one responsible for whether they get this or not. We're just called to go and preach and to teach and to speak of the things of God. But he's got to do the work in their life. So next week, we'll keep moving through this paragraph. This paragraph contains a lot of things in it. I'll give you one more example next week of a, of a man and how he responded to uh, his own sin. And then we'll, we'll move on a little bit further in that paragraph. Anybody have any questions this morning? Anything that's on anybody's mind today? Maybe not a question, but maybe even uh, just a, a statement. Jacob, you have something today? Repentance? Yeah. Believe in the gospel?
find it. <laughs> Repentance and believe in the gospel. That's what we that's what we started with. Uh-huh. Yeah. Why would they kill Jesus who was doing such a wonderful work for people? Why would they do that? Do you know why? Shouldn't everybody believe in Jesus, Jacob? Yeah. Shouldn't everybody repent of their sins and believe in Jesus as their Savior? Yeah. Thank you for the statement and the, it's a good reminder. Now, repentance and the gospel, very good. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Because the mouthpiece, make your demands, will will lead you wherever you want to go. Exactly. Yep. The whole response to that, and then the beauty of how that that entire there's number of people, and and Peter started that whole sermon with the word repent. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. His first point, repent. His last point, repent. That's that's a sermon outline for you. And there is that beauty of that those that did repent, and it goes on to say that they received the word, they were baptized, there were added unto them three thousand souls. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. These were not flash in the pan people who prayed a prayer and went home. They continued in the same doctrine. They gathered together in fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. Fear came upon every soul. Notice the fear came upon the soul even after the people were added unto the church. And all that believed were together. They had all things common. This is one of the most beautiful passages, not only of that positive repentance, but what actually a biblical church is supposed to look like. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's beautiful when it goes on and talks about they're together. They have all things in common. Uh, they continue daily in one accord, breaking bread from house to house, eat meat with gladness, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Beautiful picture. Such as should be saved. Those that the Father had given to the Son. Excellent observation. Nikki. I have a question. Yep. I think it all has to do with the acknowledgement of the sin against it is the sin against God. Because that's that's the difference between truly being sorrowful. If if that's what Paul was talking about there in 2 Corinthians 7, he's talking about sorrow that leads to repentance. So there is a connection between the sorrow that leads to the repentance unto life. In other words, I'm not just sorry for my actions that I got caught or I'm not just sorry uh, because I may have hurt someone else. 
I'm sorry for my sin because I understand how, how God views my sin and how God views the reality of the, the hatred that God has towards sin and that I, that should be reflected in my hatred towards sin. I don't think Ahab had a hatred towards sin at all. I don't think Judas had a hatred towards sin. I think these two men, and many would say Judas committed the worst sin in history. I mean, many people would say that. I mean, the guy who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, that's got to be the worst. But yet, that was part of the ordained plan of God to, get, to put Jesus on the cross in order that salvation might be made possible. But I think if you go back and you study, like a good passage to read is that 2 Corinthians 7 and go through there and see how many times Paul when he even makes the statement about, I don't repent that I made you sorry because the sorrow led to repentance that was unto salvation. So if you try to explain it to somebody, you're, we've all been there with our kids and ourselves where we've been sorry for something, but it didn't really affect us about how it affected, there was a sin against God. And it's kind of like when you tell a child, well, you, you disobeyed me. That's true, but ultimately, a disobedience of the parent is a disobedience of God, and then go all the way into how God hates sin, and you have to view it from that perspective. But I also believe you can't make a person understand what true repentance is until God works that work in their heart. Like, I think you could define it, I think you could tell them, I think you could show them passages, and I think we should, but I don't think you'll ever, until the Holy Spirit does that work, that lets them see and hear what their sin really is, that's when, they are, that's when the gift of repentance is given to them. Does that help? Yeah, I was just thinking about the, the ABCs of salvation and how he confesses that. Acknowledge belief. Like Judas and Ahab were confessing. Yeah. And a lot of those ABCs when it doesn't, have a, 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 doesn't even have a level of repentance in it. it. It goes acknowledge, and then I believe you can wash. I mean, it's so some acknowledge, I believe you can wash, and it skips the repentance part. Like, I'm okay even with the ABCs as long as the ABCR. I mean, sometimes we, sometimes we find fault with a lot of things, but it, 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 it's not that it's wrong, it's just it's incomplete. And that's what's, that's what's leading people astray. And I've seen websites, and I've seen churches that do that. They actually, they have the ABCs of salvation. It makes you cringe. You're like, okay, I see what I'm going to see. But in there, they have that, what should be an R, where there's a full acknowledgement. And it says right there, the repentance of sin is an acknowledgement that sin is an offense against God. You know, almost all my gospel presentations growing up were just simply, do you believe you're a sinner? And if you believe you're a sinner, will you trust God to save you from that? But there is never the repentance and the acknowledgement of my sin as an offense against God. So I think there's times, there's times that ABC things are good as long as they're complete. Like even someone says the Romans Road. Romans Road is fine as long as you get the complete Romans Road and don't have too many of the off-ramps that you left out. Because that's what happens a lot. That's not, I see Romans Road, but you're, you're leaving off part of the road, if that makes sense. Anything else? Hey, preacher. Yes, sir. You know, uh, there's times that in my life that I get upset. 
And see, there's an acknowledgement of it, and that now it's, you know you should repent, and that's where God's obviously doing a work. He's working in the heart to show it to you. When I do that, should I, I should write them repent, right? Absolutely. Because that falls into that category of understanding where we can become hardened and we can begin to sear our, sear our conscience from it. That's one of the beautiful things about the Spirit, how he works, is bringing us to the repentance is a beautiful work of God, that he actually brings us to the full, I know what I've done is wrong, and I know I need to repent of this, and I know I need to get, make things right with God. But, but sometimes it can come later. Like Abs- absolutely. Like, yeah, 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 and then that, that's two examples. Sometimes you may not, that repentance may not very well said, that may not be brought until later, but I think when you brought to that full acknowledgement and understanding right then, yeah, if you think I know I should repent, you probably should right then. I mean, I think God's never going to be wrong on that. Like, it's never going to be wrong to repent. Like, I've never heard anybody say, oh, no, you, you should have put that off for a couple days or so. No, I think if you're brought to that awareness, God's, God's doing the work because that's why you're aware of it. Thank you for being that transparent. You've got a church family around you that loves you. Connie. Exactly. Yeah, that's and that's what the Bible says. Yeah. 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 Psalm fifty-one is clearly a man who understood that I have I have offended God in every way, and saying I don't I don't even have the right to even ask you to forgive me for this. And that's part of that broken and, and contrite spirit. And that's, that's a good point. That's why David had to say, creating me a new heart. Now, most people would say that as far as his conversion, that even during Psalm 51, that David was a converted man. This was, this was some a believer was praying. This was not David's conversion. So think about that for a minute. So saving repentance, bringing a person to their, actually into Christ. But even afterwards, David's praying like that. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty telling. Because, you know, we think, oh, well, the really important repentance you get settles your conversion. And obviously it is. But we're supposed to be repenting people like Psalm 51. Because we could look at David and say, well, I'm not guilty of what David did with Bathsheba. If we didn't do it outwardly, we did it inwardly. Jesus himself said, if we've done any of these things, we've already committed the actual act, even if we just think about it. Even if we do do it in our heart, we're still guilty of it. So every one of us should see ourselves in David. Every, every one of us could write our own Psalm 51, hypothetically speaking. Yours, ours wouldn't be inspired, but we could write it and say, this is my confession to God. Acknowledging my own sin, acknowledging my own iniquities. And yeah, anytime, anytime we're brought to the awareness, I need to repent. You know, that's, as soon as you can do that, Obviously, you do that. You take care of it. But again, like what Nikki said, sometimes you don't. That full, the full weight of your sin may not even hit till later, and it might hit at a time you don't expect it to. You know, so that's 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 the beauty of how God works. One of the many ways. All right, good this morning. Anything else? All right. Well, let's go ahead and we'll pray and we'll plan on a few minutes of fellowship. Uh, we'll try to stay as close to our normal schedule as, you, as we can, um, but um, let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this time this morning. 
And Lord, we know we are dealing with weighty matters and we're dealing with things that even as believers and part of the body of Christ, uh, the reminder and the awareness of our own sin is brought to the forefront. And Lord, you've told us that if we are in Christ, we don't dwell on these things and we don't uh, stay uh, in this state of constant grief because we know that our sin has been paid for, that Jesus Christ accomplished our salvation on the cross. But Lord, may we always be tender uh, to the moving of the Spirit. May we always uh, respond as the Spirit works in our heart, whether it's uh, right away conviction or uh, even conviction that comes later. Uh, but Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in the lives of your people. I thank you, Father, how you're working through the Spirit in this place. And Lord, we are just so grateful because we know how unworthy we are of the beauty of the gospel. And yet you and your mercy, you've extended it to us. Thank you for this glorious grace. Father, I pray now that you be with us as we just take this few minutes to fellowship one with another and prepare our hearts uh, to come back together in just a few moments. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. All right. Thank you. Thank you.